If you have a Bible, we're going to go on in Nehemiah. So if you just turn there, we're going to mainly be looking at chapter 4, but I'm going to talk a little bit about some things in chapter 2 again. I'm not going to draw the uh, timeline I had up last week, but if you can picture in your mind, like I said, you have little pegs to hang your hat on. You know, you've got Abraham called out of Ur of Chaldees in 2000. In 1500, you have the Exodus take place. So it's, in the Old Testament, it's B.C., the numbers are getting smaller. 1500, approximately, you have the Exodus. 1000, you have the reigns of Solomon and David. And everything kind of goes downhill after Solomon, for the most part. You have a few revivals in Judah and Jerusalem. And these are really dates you should all know, really, to help you read your Bibles. In 722, Assyria comes, and they basically wipe out the northern ten tribes and take them off into captivity. In 586, Babylon takes over the world, and they come, and they wipe out Jerusalem. So all of Israel at that point, 586, is laid waste. And the people, for the most part, are taken off into captivity. So then you have Cyrus, who Persia takes over from Babylon. They take over the world rule. And in 539, 539, Cyrus issues a decree that they can go back and build their temple. And so they send the first of the remnant back. They go back. And it's funny, so 586 is when Nebuchadnezzar raised Jerusalem and the temple what did Jeremiah say? How many years would it be? Seventy years. And in 516, that is when the temple was dedicated. Exactly. Seventy years. And so in 458, Ezra comes with the second group, and he brings reform. He brings people back to, hey, we have to obey the Lord. We have to obey the law. That was his main emphasis. And so this third group that comes in under Nehemiah, they come in. It's 445. And shortly thereafter, you know, Malachi is written around 400. So we've got then 400 years of silence where we don't have any prophets. God basically isn't speaking. The revelation stops until we have the New Testament and the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the book of Nehemiah we talked about last week, it begins with Nehemiah. He hears his brother comes back and a few other men and he says, hey, you know, what's going on in Jerusalem? And he hears the condition of Jerusalem and that the temple's been rebuilt but the wall is broken down, the gates are burned with fire, and the people are in, it says, great distress and reproach. Like we said last week, he hears that news, and it just devastates him. It just hit him in the gut, because he had a love for the Lord, and he had a love for his people. And like all the great men of the Bible, and all the great men, and even us, God's honor meant a lot to him. And so the reproach of the wall being broken down, and his people being overcome like that, it overwhelms him. He has to sit down. And the thought of it, he begins to weep and mourn. And then he starts to fast and pray to God. And so why did he have that kind of reaction on hearing that those walls were down and the gates were burned? Because here's one thing he knows, that a city back then, a city without a wall was totally defenseless. There was no security, no stability for the people. Men and animals can come in and out of that city as they please because what's to stop them? And a lot of people would say, hey, the city walls were as important to a people as their army was. Proverbs 25, 28 says, like a city that is broken down and without a wall, so is a man who has no control over his spirit. 
So such a man has no control. It's just like any temptation or emotion that comes his way just overruns him and controls him. And so it's the same way with the city. When you have no walls up, any passing band of marauders can just come in and loot the city, and the people's lives are in danger. The temple could be looted or destroyed. The Jews' enemies, they can do what they want to. And so not only that, but God's honor is at stake with the way this whole city is. This is the city that of all the places on the earth, this little insignificant city, Jerusalem, God says, there I will place my presence and my name, and it's the city of God, the great city of God. It's, it's insignificant in a way, but because God has said, this is where I will dwell. It's a big deal. And so the fact those walls are broken down, that is no small thing. Nehemiah knows that the city and the walls must be rebuilt. And so here's what he tells the people. Look in chapter 2, verse 17. He tells the people this. He said, and then I said unto them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And so he says, you see the situation that we are in. And he includes himself in there with the rest of those people that have been living there, even though he just has arrived. He's just gotten there. Because back in verse 11, if you read in verse 11, look at what it says there. It says, he had just come there. He says, so I came to Jerusalem when he came from Persia. And he says, I was there three days. So he came to Jerusalem. It was a long trip. He takes three days to rest. And after his, his brief rest, if you go on and read up to verse 17, he takes a few men, he gets on a donkey, and he goes out to survey the scene. He needs to see how bad this damage really is. And all he sees are walls broken down. He sees charred gates just lying there in ruins. And the rubble is so bad, at one point he says he couldn't even get his beast, his donkey, to pass through. Look at verse 13. He says, then I went on to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. He said, I couldn't even get around the whole city to survey all the damage that was going on. That's how bad it was. And so once he gets a grasp on the task at hand, he calls the people together. And there it is. We read the first part of verse 17. He says, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem's lying waste and the gates are burned with fire. He's saying, look, just look all around you. Look at this situation that we're in. Look at the trouble we're in, the bad situation. It's lying wasted. And he's asking them, really, do you want to keep living this way? He, Surely you don't want to keep living like this in the midst of all this rubble with the gates down. He's like, we are God's people. We're God's people. And he wants to prosper us. And so what does he go on to say in the second half of that? He says, come. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach. Be no longer a reproach. Because they were mocking those people. Oh, you're God's people. Look at this city. Look at these walls. They were a reproach among the people. He's saying, look, we're God's people. We don't have to be that way. He's promised us if our hearts are right and we come back, he'll make things work for us. He'll rebuild these walls. And I believe that is God's word to our church. So you feel distressed, you feel discouraged, like our walls are down, like manifestations aren't coming, and we've been a reproach. Let the word of God speak to us like it spoke back then. God's saying, come. 
Come, build up the wall. He's saying, I will keep you from being a reproach. That's what God will do. So he told the church at Sardis in the book of Revelation, he tells them this. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. He says, remember, therefore, this is his solution. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. So how do we strengthen the things that remain? Those of us that are discouraged, distressed, how do we do that? He says you need to remember something. He says remember how you received and heard. Well, I know how I received and heard when I came under this teaching, just the teaching of the Bible. For lack of a better thing, I don't like the faith message because that has a connotation like ask and receive, so all we're going to be is bless, bless, bless. Like Brother Hamilton, he kind of corrected all that. He would still say faith message, but he's saying living by faith just means we're living according to how God shows us in the Bible. That's the faith message, right? We trust him for all things. But that's how we received. That's how I received. I heard this message that God is all I need. He's my righteousness. He's my savior. He's my healer. He's my provider. Amen. He's all of those things, our deliverer. I learned, and for me, this was the greatest news. It was fresh water to a thirsty soul. I learned we can trust him for everything we need in this life. And that he is faithful to come through. He is. We don't have to lean to our own understanding. It wasn't left just faith. So some groups, all they teach is faith, faith, faith. But we heard the other side of the message too, didn't we? Plenty of times, or at least three times, Brother Hamilton went through the Sermon on the Mount and explained. We know it doesn't work just because we quote-unquote believe, right? We have got to have a holy life. It's faith and holiness, obedience to the Word of God. But that's what we heard. And we heard if we'll do that, and I'm saying I believe it, I know it, I've experienced Many of us in here have. If we live a holy life and trust him with all of our heart, he'll never let us down. He will be with us, won't he? He'll never let us down. Never will we be a reproach. And so what did that word say to the church of Sardis? He said, remember how you have received and heard and hold fast to that. And for those that have gotten away from it, what was the last word? Repent, because some have let it go. You're feeble, you feel like you have no strength, you're discouraged. Maybe it's because you've let go of what you've heard and received. Maybe you've let go of trusting God with all of your heart and giving yourself a way out. And I would say, hey, we need to repent, maybe all of us to some degree, right, of doubt, of fear, of unbelief. Repent of worldly, unconsecrated lives, wherever that applies, right? We're talking about reproach. We're talking about, he says, let's build the walls. Come, let's build the walls. We don't have to be a reproach. And in 1 Samuel 17, guess what? Goliath, old snarly, tooth, nine foot tall, big guy Goliath, he was putting Israel in reproach. Listen to what he told them. He comes to these armies and he says, I defy the armies of Israel this day. He says, give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words, of the Philistine, it says they were dismayed and greatly afraid. That was a reproach. They were afraid of this Philistine. They were afraid of this huge circumstance staring them in the face. And later when David brought his brother lunch, it says this. It says, Behold, 
there came up of the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines. And it says, he spake according to the same words. He just kept getting in their face. I defy you all. I'm bigger and badder than you and your God. I defy you all to do anything. Just send any man out. I'll eat him up. That's what he did. It's a reproach. He said he spake according to the same words. But guess what? There was one man there. It says in the account in 1 Samuel 17, and David heard those words. He heard what that man was saying. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, it says, and they were sore afraid. So we're talking about a reproach. Listen to what David said. Well, what shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine? And listen to what he says. And takes away the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And that's the key. It's not that they had armies. It's not that they were good fighters. It's that they were the armies of the living God. And who is this guy? Going to come here and defy the armies of the living God. Bring a reproach on us. And so how was the reproach removed? What did David do? He ran at him. He wasn't afraid of him. The reproach was removed by him trusting the Lord. Isn't that how it works? And that's what Nehemiah is telling them. He says, come, let us build. Let us get back. Let us get our city back to where it was. Let's strengthen those things that remain. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem. Look what he says there in verse 17, Nehemiah 2. That we be no more a reproach. And let me say, what is the key to that? Is the key that, hey, I'm going to go do these things now all of a sudden because I want to get things right? No, no, no. You don't do anything. Israel tried that at one time. They got brought to the edge of the promised land, and God says, go up into that land. And they were like, oh, no. they listened to the spies. We can't do it. And God says, all right, well, then you're going to be wandering around in that wilderness. Well, they hear that. They're like, wait, we don't want to do that. Let's go on up there. And the Lord says, don't do that now. Uh-uh, because I'm not with you. It's going to be bad news for you guys. And it was. So you've got to know the key to all of this is you have to know that God is with you. Because that is where your strength and courage to build will come from. And look, we see that right here. Here's what Nehemiah tells them. Come, let us build, that we be no longer a reproach. He gives them the reason right here in verse 18. He says, I told him something, that the hand of my God, which was good, is upon me. That's the reason they could do it. God's with them. And so also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. Look what the end of verse 18. They are encouraged. Well, then let us rise up and build and with that information, what does it say they did? They strengthened their hands for this good work. He says, the good hand of the Lord was upon me. And when the good hand of the Lord is upon you, you can do what he asked you to do. The impossible. <laughs> Amen. That's the way it is. So listen, Moses died. And the mantle fell on who? It fell on Joshua to bring the children of Israel into the promised land. That had to be a daunting task for that young man. And I'm sure he felt totally inadequate. So maybe you're in here today in a situation, maybe in your home, something with your job, whatever it is, emotionally. 
healing-wise, and you feel it is totally over your head, welcome to the club. That's the club of the Bible. It's over all of our heads, right? So we're talking about Joshua. So you read Joshua chapter 1. It's an encouraging chapter. How did God encourage Joshua? Joshua 1.5, he says this to Joshua. Listen, he says, There shall not any man be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And why did he tell him that? He says, because as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. He tells Joshua, be strong and of good courage. That is the key. He says, Joshua, this is what you need to know. Most of all, as I was with Moses, my presence was with him, so I will be with you. And he says, because I'm with you, I, God Almighty, will never fail you or forsake you. God's presence was with Joshua, wasn't it? If you go on and read that, fighting his battles. He's the one that went before him. Those walls fell down because the angel of the Lord caused them to fall down. They were just trusting him. Amen? That's all they were doing, just trusting him. And he's given him direction on what to do. Exactly. He, he was so faithful. He told him that in chapter 1. And you read all the way through 24 chapters. He did exactly what he said. What I did for Moses, Joshua, I will do the exact same thing for you. And God did. Nothing failed. God never failed him. And so what is the Lord Jesus Christ? What does he promise every single New Testament believer? Without exception. That's every one of us as a New Testament believer. Listen to what he says. Hebrews 13, 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. The same thing he said to Joshua, he says to us. The Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. So the Lord Jesus Christ promises every believer in this room right now, every believer, he'll never leave us or abandon us and that he will be our helper. And listen, that should give us, if we just meditate on that, great boldness not to fear. That's what Scott talked about today. It is true. How many times does God tell us to encourage us that we don't have to be afraid or live in fear? He says he won't forsake us. To forsake, that word forsake there means to separate your connection with somebody. That's, and God says, I'll never do that with you. The Lord Jesus Christ says, I will never do that to you. It's the same word that's used when it says Demas left Paul. That is what he did to him. He deserted him. He left him all by himself. Left him hanging. Demas has forsaken me, Paul. So he just left me by myself here hanging. And God says through the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll never do that to you. Never. I'll never just leave you hanging in a trial or in any situation you have. Never separate himself from us, but he will be there to help us. He'll never fail us. That is his promise to us. We've got to start believing these promises. Amen. <laughs> Amen. And not hoping they work. They will work. And so we're talking about his presence being with you, and you feel like, man, his presence just isn't with me like I'd like it to be. Amen. I'll amen that. It should never be like we'd like it to be. And I don't think any of us have had to walk in there with our faces veiled yet because God's glory is just shining off. Nobody can look at it, right? So we ain't there yet. But praise God, you say it's not there. Yay. 
Look at another promise, James 4, draw nigh to God. That's what we have to do. That's our responsibility. And what does James say? He will draw nigh to you. Is that true? I mean, it's true. And God is faithful. What we want to see here next is as soon as the people here in Nehemiah, they committed themselves to doing the Lord's work, and as soon as they consecrated their lives to him, hey, let's build. He's with us. We're all in. That's what they said. Look what happens. Yeah, we see that here in verse 18, that, that they strengthen their hands for this good work. But what immediately comes after that? Verse 19, opposition. That's the first thing you're going to get. It says, but when Symbalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arabian, heard it, what did they do? Here's what they get. They laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? So these three men, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, what are they? What is the source of all of this? Remember, we taught a whole thing on spiritual warfare. It may be these men, but they're not fighting men. These men are tools of Satan, is what they are, to discourage. That's all they're after. They want to discourage the people, affect their morale. And you know what they want to have happen? They want the building to stop. And that's what the devil wants to happen here. He wants this church destroyed. And that's all he's after. That's all he cares about. And that's what we're going to talk about today, dealing with opposition and discouragement. That's what it is. And it's a principle that we find throughout the Bible. So as soon as any individual or any group of God's people, they dedicate themselves to doing his will, whether it's personally as a group, however it is. As soon as they dedicate themselves to doing his will, there is immediate opposition by the devil. That's what happens. And he works many times through people. And it's constant. And it's unending opposition. So you remember last week we talked about Paul and the church at Antioch. They're fasting and ministering to the Lord. That's at the beginning of Acts chapter 13. And I believe it was through one of the prophets. It talks about prophets were there. That the Holy Spirit spoke through one of those prophets and said, Separate me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work of ministry. They went and fasted some more. They lay hands on them. And then it says they were sent, the first missionaries, out into the mission field by the Holy Spirit. He sent them out. But you know, you don't have to read very far. Just a few verses later, in verse 6, they come to the island of Cyprus. And when they get to the city of Paphos, it's the second city they visited on the island of Cyprus. Whom do they encounter? We're saying as soon as you get a blessing from God and you're dedicated to doing his work, you're going to meet opposition. And what's the first person that comes and meets them in Paphos? A false prophet, Elymas, the sorcerer. And what was his design? He wants to turn Sergius Paulus from the faith. Opposition. And so Paul's anointed by God. He's doing God's will. He's building his kingdom. He's the first missionary. But here's what happens. Immediately, he meets opposition as he's doing God's will. Encounters it. Comes face to face with this devil. Elemis, filled with the devil. Now, was he overcome by that? Here's what it says. It says, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, he set his eyes on him, and he said, oh, full of all subtlety and all mischief, 
you child of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. And Paul, what is he? He has to deal with opposition, and he deals with it, doesn't he? Now, that is not Paul, because he's like offended that, hey, you know, I was preaching a real good sermon, and you interrupted me, and you interrupted me, Paul the Apostle. That's not what's going on there. This isn't some personal vindictiveness coming out of him. Uh -uh. This is the Holy Spirit anointing him. This is God speaking through him, right? So where's the love in all this, you say? He's pronouncing the curse on this guy. Where is the love in that? Well, sometimes that's the way it is. Look what Nehemiah, look how he answers these guys that laugh and despise the Jews. Look what it says in verse 20. He says, then I answered them, Nehemiah, and I said unto them, he said, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But look what he says to them. He says, but you guys, you have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. Where's the love in that? He's not saying, hey, come and build with us. He's like, you guys are opposing God. You have no right in this. You won't be a part of this. That's what he's telling them right there. So Nehemiah and the children of Israel, they encounter conflict. Paul encounters conflict. And here's what Jesus said to us. He said, the disciple, that's us, is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. He says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? So what can we expect? What can we expect? We can expect the same things. If we're living right with God, we can and should experience conflict. Does it still not say all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall what? Suffer persecution. That should be happening in one form or another, right? It's the hallmark of the Christian experience, right? That's what it is. And think about it here. If Nehemiah would have just stayed a cupbearer and sucked up to the king... How much opposition would he have had? Zero, right? But as soon as he consecrates himself, consecrates himself to doing the Lord's work, and the people there, guess what happens? Trouble. That's the way it works. So just be in love with the world, and the devil will be in love with you, and he'll leave you alone. He will. He'll gladly leave you alone. But I'm going to say this, get serious about dealing with sin in your life and consecrating your life to do his will. I'm going to do... Lord, what you want, no matter the cost. And I'm saying get ready because opposition's coming your way. That's the way it is. I'm telling you that from firsthand experience. It's the way it works. I don't want to have to get into my testimony again, but I'm just telling you that's the way it is. So the conflict DMI encounters from these three men, it escalates. It does. It escalates as the story goes on. So look here. First, they're just disturbed that they hear that Nehemiah has come. Now look in chapter 2, verse 10. So when Simbalat and the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, they heard of it. They heard that Nehemiah has come and has these letters from the king. It said it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. 
So they're just mildly, you know, whatever. They're just like, okay, it's bothering us a little bit, grieving us, right? But the next thing, they're getting mildly amused and they're mocking. We already read this, and that's in chapter 219 when Sambalat, Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem heard it. Here, it's increasing. They laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? Now listen, once the building seriously begins, in chapter 3, I'm not going to deal with chapter 3 today, but it lists the names of 41 groups of Jews that began building in unselfish unity. I may come back and deal with that when I deal with chapter 5. But when that happens in chapter 3, and they're serious in this building, and they say, hey, this is really happening, that is when the opposition becomes intense. Because now, Sam Ballot, he's no longer amused. He is outraged. So turn to chapter 4 and look in verse 1. And it says, but it came to pass that when Samballot heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth. That means more than angry. He is hot and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And I'm saying the rest of this chapter, all of chapter 4 is about the unrelenting conflict and opposition that God's people will encounter. That's what this whole chapter is dealing with. That's what we're going to talk about today. It's unrelenting from these guys through this whole chapter and on. So he mocks or ridicules, it says there, he mocks and ridicules the Jews. So the first thing we see here, this is the tool of the devil. It's in a sense, quote unquote, psychological warfare that's taking place here. So he's standing in front of the Jews as they build the walls, and no doubt he's within hearing distance, and he speaks to an assembly of his brethren, it says, and to an entire army of Samaritans. Look in verses 2 and 3. And so here he's hot, he's mocking the Jews, and look what it says, verse 2, he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria, and look what he says, what do these feeble Jews, will they fortify themselves, will they sacrifice, will they make an end in a day, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which were burned, and now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he has to throw in his two cents worth, and he said, well even that which they build, if a fox go up, shall even break down their stone wall. So what's he doing here? He's got that army surrounding there standing outside. That in and of itself would have been enough to intimidate those people. It really would have been. But now, he's just not making a show of force. He's going to use words to destroy their morale. And whether we like to admit it or not, sticks and stones may not break our bones, but they can mess with us. All right? They can mess with you. It can be highly effective. I like what one man said. He says, morale is challenged at the deepest level when we find that others are making fun of us and telling each other how utterly stupid we are to be doing what we are doing. And you tell me, walking by faith, you haven't experienced that. I'll tell you, I have more than once how utterly stupid you are. Like, I am really that stupid. Fine. Well, listen, this Sam Ballot is very calculating. He is a very calculating because the devil's helping him. He knows how to cut deep into the heart of these people with his words. They're demonically inspired. So look at the first thing he says here. Verse 2, it says, he says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Look at these people. <laughs> Poor, incompetent Jews. They think they're going to put this thing up, and they're hearing that from this guy. Oh, I guarantee you, he's saying it loud enough. They're all hearing it. 
Look at these poor, incompetent Jews. And then he says, well, they, these people, fortify themselves? Or in other words, are they going to restore the walls? Look, look at what has to be done here. And these people, <laughs> they think they can do it? That's what he's telling them. And then he's like, will they sacrifice is the next thing he says. In other words, is their God going to help them? Look, look what their religion, where is their God? This God that's let these walls in his temple be totally demolished. Were they going to sacrifice this? God's going to come help them, he's asking them. And he says, were well, they going to make an end in a day? They were going at it. These guys were working hard. And he's like, man, look at their zeal. They're mocking them. Look how hard you guys are working. Oh, you're going to get done today, huh? What's the people that build their churches up in almost a day? Kingdom house. Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah. Yeah, they're like them. They're going to put this church up in a day. Put this temple back up, get this wall back up in a day. And then he says, the last thing he says, well, they revive the stones out of the rubble. Well, you know, burnt stones, don't they know? They put those up, they're going to crumble. <laughs> I mean, that's the way he's talking to them, making fun of them. And like I said, then old Tobiah, his buddy, he's got to throw his jab in. Saying, look at those walls. And they had foxes running around there at the time. That place was open. Anything. He's like, yeah, they're going to build this thing up and look at how good a job they're doing. One of these foxes happens to jump on that thing at night, and the whole thing is just going to fall over. Ha, ha, ha. And that's what these people are. They're hearing that in their ears. That had to be affecting them. It was, believe me. So, listen, the devil, through these men, he knew how to play on their insecurities, their doubts, and their fears of failing. Because that's what he does to us, doesn't he? Tell me he doesn't. Speaks through people, sometimes well-meaning people. And sometimes, like I said, can't we feel, walking this way by faith, can't we feel like uneducated fools in the eyes of our relatives, our coworkers, our neighbors? You know, I don't have nearly as many kids as many people in this church, but, you know, when Lisa's pregnant at whatever age, you know, it's like, don't, don't you guys know, you hear all the things about they have ways of keeping women from getting pregnant, not having so many children. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I only got four. <laughs> you know, and they're like, well, that's 2.6 too many, you know, in today's standard. If you can get there quick, look over at this just so we can read this again. I'm saying the world's going to make you feel like an idiot because you got more than one or two kids. But look what God says. We haven't read this in a while. Psalm 127. We'll read the whole thing. It's only five verses. Except the Lord build the house, Psalm 127. They labor in vain. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for he gives his beloved sleep. Amen. Verse 3, and he says, Lo, what does it say? Children are a curse. That's what the world says. And they think we're idiots to believe this. But it says what? Children are a heritage of the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is what? God cursing us? It's his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. And happy, blessed is the man or woman that has their quiver full of them. So the world says you ought to be ashamed for having all those kids. And what does God say? He says, you shall not be ashamed, but you shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Now, I worked for a lady one time. Man, they had all the money in the world. And she goes, she says, I'm going to tell you, John, I made a mistake. I listened to what they said, and I only had two kids, and I wanted to have a bunch more, and one of them's dead now in a head-on crash. I'm left with just this one, and I'm past the age of having children. 
But praise God, when we can have a dozen of them. You aren't going to be lonely in your old age, that's for sure. She was lonely. So let them mock. Amen? That's what they're doing to Israel. They're saying, you people, you got your religion and all that, you're crazy. Feeble, feeble-minded, believing this stuff. Let them mock us. Honestly. There was one person, I talked to somebody here recently, they, they said they were asked, they were begged to vote. You know, don't you care about your country? They said, sure, we pray for the country every night. We're the best citizens there are. We obey, we actually obey the laws. Believe it or not. Pray for the country all the, all the time. Well, you know, well, you need to add a vote to your prayers is what was said. Well, here's the thing. I'm not sure, honestly, I'm not sure who God wants me to vote for. Because Daniel 4.17 says this, To the intent that the living may know that the Most High, He rules in the kingdom of men, and He gives it to whomsoever He will, and sets up over it the basest of men. And honestly, I'm having trouble in this election figuring out which is the basest of men. I don't know who God wants, honestly. You tell me who you would vote for if you're a Christian. You don't have a Christian to vote for. Neither one. Not even close. And I'm sure if all these people to live back then in the first century, they would not have voted in wicked Nero persecuting the church. You know, they weren't petitioning Rome to get rid of him. No, you got Peter and you have Paul. They're both saying what? You submit to these men. God's put them there. They're all wicked. <laughs> the kingdoms of this world. And he was a base person. He was. Very base and crazy. And yet he was the ruler. We're nuts, right? We don't vote. Or maybe you do, I don't know. But that's not the way I learn things. Because like I said, I don't know who God wants in office. And I'd hate to be voting against him. Or you got a concerned relative, you know, he wants to, they want to make sure. And they're concerned, they're genuinely concerned, or a friend, or somebody at work. Hey, you need to get treatments. Don't you know that what you have could easily be treated? And what are you talking about? You're going to trust God. And you feel like an idiot. Have any of you been there? Oh, I've been there. Yeah. You feel like an idiot, you're going to trust God. And who wants to look like an idiot in this day of modern medical science, right? And I'm saying trusting God can be humiliating. That's what we're seeing here. In these war of words, it starts beating us down, doesn't it? It starts having an overall effect on us as a church and what we believe and how we look at promises. Because the devil uses people, even well-meaning people, and we've gotten away from what we received and heard at the beginning. That God is faithful. He is the Lord, our healer. That's what it says. So it is humiliating. It was humiliating for Naaman the leper. A renowned general has to dip in a filthy river of the Jews of all places. And here's the deal. Our pride has to take a hit many times, doesn't it? If we want to experience God's power. We could go through numerous examples out of the Bible, Old and New Testament, on how your pride is going to have to take a hit. Many times. And what about our Lord? We're saying these people are scorning, they're humiliating, they're mocking the Jews because they dare to trust God. What about our Lord? He comes to Jairus' house to pray for Jairus' daughter. 
And he walks up there and it says they're all weeping and wailing greatly, making much to do that she's passed away. And Jesus asked them, why do you make this ado and weep? Why are you making such a commotion, he asked them, such an uproar and weeping? He said, well, she's not dead. She's sleeping. She's sleeping. And you know what it says next? Tobiah's working through those people there. The same spirit working in him is working through those people. It says they laughed him to scorn. The Lord Jesus Christ. They ridiculed him is what that word means. In other words, they began to make fun of him because he dared to trust God. Laughed him to scorn, made fun of him. It says they derided him. And let me ask you, how do you think our Lord felt when that happened? And you say, well, he's Jesus. Yeah, well, Jesus was a man. Tempted in all points. He was a man with emotions. <laughs> Is it a sin that something hurts you that somebody said to you? Is that a sin? That's not a sin. And I think I had to cut. He had to overcome that reproach, didn't he? Just like Nehemiah and the Jews did. Just like we're reading here. And just like you and I will if we walk in the truth. There's going to come times we're going to be derided, scorned, ridiculed, raised eyebrows. This first opposition coming here, it can be very effective. It's hard. You know, I'm in class and something comes up, the teacher realizes, I believe, I've said this before, you're going to hear it again. I'll be like Brother Hamilton. This will be probably 14 times before you know, the next few years are done. But this guy realizes, I believe in non-resistance. And man, he, this teacher is like, he comes after me on that. And he's provoking questions, provoking the class. I got 40 people against me. And they are not happy. I mean, I had guys, literally, I'm glad there were no guns in the room. I'd have been shot and killed. <laughs> literally. I, I am not joking about that. I got a verbal beatdown. Nobody did anything to me physically. I'm saying that stuff, it's just like, it's unnerving. It really is. And so to say verbal assaults that the devil brings through anyway, act like they don't affect you, it's, it's not the way it works. But here, let's see something. Back to Nehemiah. Back to Nehemiah chapter 4. What was his response to this psychological warfare? What did he do? You know what he did? What is Nehemiah primarily? He is a man of prayer. Is he not? We've seen that. And that's what he does here. Look, all this comes. They mock him in verses 2 and 3. And look, he goes to prayer. He says, verse 4, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Look at what they're doing to us, Lord. And turn their reproach upon their own head and give them for a prey in the land of captivity. And cover not their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee. For they have provoked thee to anger in front of these people that are trying to do your will, the builders. There again, he's not defending himself. He's saying, you've made, the Lord is angry. And you take care of this, Lord. He puts it in his hand, doesn't he? He says, first of all, he says, just consider this reproach, what they're doing to us, and help us. Consider what they're saying. We're despised. Help us, Lord, is what he's saying. And then he asks God to judge them. Not his enemies, but because they are God's enemies. And so to a lot of people, those kind of prayers bother them. It sounds like barbarianism. No love there. But hey, we have the same thing in the New Testament. Did you know that? Revelation 6.10, the martyrs are under the throne. And what do they say? How long, O Lord, holy and true, 
Do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Imprecatory prayers. So our heart is that we want to see people to repent. That's our heart, isn't it? But at times there's prayers for God's justice. And so the other thing we see, the second response is, Verses 4 and 5, he prays, but the second way, he doesn't try to answer these guys. They mock them with their psychological warfare and all that. You know what he does? He prays, and they just go back to work. Look at it, verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, because we just didn't pay attention to them. It says, for the people, they had a mind to work, getting something done. They're like, you all could sit there and say whatever you want to, but God has put this in our hearts, and we got a mind to work. And they get that wall halfway up, but they put that wall up in a really quick amount of time. Sound like Donald Trump promises with his wall down on the border. Maybe he got that out of the Bible. I don't know. Had a mind to work. So it was in their hearts, these people, wasn't it? These Jews came back. They're no ordinary Jews, you know. They have got it in their heart. They want to obey the Lord, and they want to please the Lord. We're working right on through going to put blinders on to you guys. Maybe they had cotton in their ears. I don't know what they used back then, right? We're not listening to that stuff. But then they go from that, and after that doesn't work, then come the physical threats. And look in verses 7 and 8. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. And literally, Jerusalem at that point was surrounded literally on all sides. So Sanballat was on the north, the Arabians were to the south, the Ammonites were on the east, and the Ashdodites, the Philistines, they were to the west. It was an unholy alliance. All of them were linking hands. They conspired to come together to fight against Jerusalem. And they had to be numerically outnumbered, tremendously outnumbered. And that would have been very intimidating. So once again, what is their recourse to this? The enemies are surrounding all around them. What is their recourse? What do you think? Somebody take a guess. Prayer. If you said prayer, that was a great guess. That was a good educated guess because there we have it in verse 9. Nevertheless, he says, they're surrounding us, intimidating us. We, this is all the people now, we made our prayer unto our God. And they did something else. They set a watch against them day and night because of them. They did what Jesus told us to do when we have great temptations coming our way. What does he tell us to do? Watch and pray. Isn't that what they're doing? And they kept their vigilance up. It says day and night. And so sometimes when you're in a heavy trial like they were at this point, it seems like the enemy is surrounding you and there is no let up day or night. And you can't let your guard down, can you? You have got to keep at it. And it can wear you out at times. But here's what Peter tells us. Be sober. Be vigilant. Watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world, but the God of all grace, he will get you through that time. He will. Enemies surrounding you, it seems like, man, this is way more. They're going to overwhelm me, and I get no rest, Lord. And he says, the God of all grace, 
will come in, who has called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, not for the rest of your life, but for a while he will make you perfect, establish, and strengthen you. So they're coming there with the physical threat. Now we here right now, we may not be, most of us aren't encountering literal physical threats at the present, but that does not mean that they will not come because he talked about your brethren throughout the world. Listen, our brethren throughout the world, many of them are suffering physically in a great way. And we need to be ready for that. We can't act like it's not gonna happen to us because I think it will. I do. I think we will, some of us, end up in jail spoiling our goods, messing with our families. It's coming. We're living in fairy tale land here in America compared to the rest of the world as far as our Christianity goes. And so I'd like us to turn and look over in Hebrews 10, please. Because here we're going to see that pattern again, illumination and then persecution. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 32, the writer there says, but call to remembrance. Remember this, the former days, your early days in which after you were illuminated, after you got light, after you gave yourself to the Lord, you endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches, here we are again, reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. For you had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, he says, your confidence, for it has mega, great recompense of reward. For you have need of endurance, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. And so how do we live? How do the just live? The just shall live by faith. Trust in God. But if any man draws back, Quits trust in the Lord. My soul shall have no pleasure in him. He says, but he encourages them. We are not of them which draw back unto destruction or perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. He's saying as soon as you were enlightened, guess what? Conflict came. He says you were made a gazing stock. You know what that means? They were made a public spectacle, just like the Jews were back in that day. Because the Greek word, gazing stock, is theatrizo, which is where we get our word theater. And it means to bring upon a stage, to expose the public contempt. And to think that won't happen to us at some point through reproaches. This is what you really believe? Drug before court. You really believe this? Yes, sir, I do. Can't deny my Lord. You won't take an oath? No. He tells us not to twice. Won't do that. So this is what we're promised, are we not? We need to remember this. What are we promised in the New Testament as Christians? A life of ease. We're promised what? We're promised suffering. And my thing would be, are we ready for that? Are we really ready to suffer for the Lord? Because it says there that they took joyfully the spoiling of their goods. And when it happened, they did it joyfully. And why? Because their hope and their life wasn't based on everything going on around them down here, was it? It said they knew they had an enduring substance in heaven. And that's where they were placing their hope and their joy. Right? Not in what they had here. It's something we need to think about. 
So let's go back to Nehemiah 4. So the people had to overcome scorn, psychological attacks, physical threats. And verses 10, 11, and 12 give us three more ways the devil attacks. I won't spend as much time on this. And look in verse 10. It's discouragement comes at them. Verse 10, And Judah said the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, and there is much rubbish so that we are not able to build the walls. And so the bearers of burden, these are the people that are doing the dirty work. The burden bearers, not the bricklayers. These are the ones that are clearing the rubble out and the dust and bringing the charred stones to the builders. And the work's starting to overwhelm these guys. Starting to be overwhelming. It's a much bigger job than they realize, and it's going a lot slower than they thought it would. And so they're facing personal discouragement. They say, we are not able to build the wall. So they probably, all their initial excitement, sure, we don't mind clearing out the rubble and all that other, no problem. But after they go at it a while, this is what happens sometimes. They pray, they're overcoming the physical threats, the psychological threats, but just the work itself, just the endurance of this trial is starting to wear on them. That's what happens. People with long trials, sometimes it just wears on you that way, doesn't it? Is that you? We'll answer that in just a minute. And then the next thing we see here in verse 11 is there's a propaganda campaign going on. It says, And our adversary said, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst of them and slay them and cause the work to cease. And that propaganda they're saying, they're saying, We're going to come on you guys at a time you're not looking for it. You won't see us coming, and we'll slit your throats, and you'll be done. That's the threat. And guess how it's being spread? by well-meaning Jews. They're saying this outside the walls now, and there's people that live outside the walls that are coming into work, and they're bringing these reports in with them. That's what we have here in verse 12. And it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said unto us, they tell us this stuff ten times, from all places whence you shall return unto us, they shall be to you. So hearing these rumors that are being said, this propaganda, and they're bringing them into the camp, they says they said unto us, us. They're spreading it around. They're not just telling Nehemiah what's going on. They're telling all the people, and it's getting them discouraged. It's like the 10 spies coming and bringing an evil report just to get the people to quit and be discouraged. Exaggerated claims is what's happening here because it doesn't happen about what the enemy will do. And a lot of times, to bring it home, it's kind of like hearing reports of what symptoms mean. We're going to kill you when you don't even know what's coming. And I think we need to be careful about how much we share. I want to say this. These evil reports are coming in. They're being spread by the people. It's discouraging people, right? And I'm getting to the point to where these reports are coming in that are evil. I want to hear the Lord's report. Amen? Amen? What is the Lord's report? We just heard it a few weeks ago. Surely, for a fact, He has taken away our sicknesses and borne our pains. It's right there. Surely he has borne our pains and carried away our diseases. As Isaiah said, who has believed our report? Because our great physician has given us a report, has he not? It's right there on the wall. Amen? Amen. We should be amen in that. Our physician has given us a report, and we need to know that he's not a man, that he should lie. Is he? Amen. And so I'm saying positively, let's believe the Lord's report. <laughs> we can choose by God's grace. 
in conclusion, I'd say, what was Nehemiah? So we, I just named three other things. We've named five things that the enemy uses as opposition to discourage us, to quit building, to stop, to just give in. And what was his answer to all these attacks of the enemy besides praying to produce fear and, and, and discouragement? Look at verse 14. Look right there what Nehemiah says. He says, and I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people what Scott said to us earlier. What does he say? Be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and terrible and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. So what was his answer? He said, hey, they may mock and ridicule you. They may threaten you physically. You may become discouraged because the work has taken a long time. The enemy may try to get you to surrender because of his evil reports, his propaganda of doom, so to speak. But what does he tell them? He says, do not be afraid of them. That's God's word to us. Do not be afraid of them because who are they? Who is Sambalat? Who is this Tobiah? Who is Geshem? Aren't they just men? The fear of man brings a snare, it says in Proverbs. But whoso puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Amen. Amen? Amen. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoso puts his trust in the Lord, that person, it says, shall be safe. And what about Satan and his symptoms and all of what he brings our way? Should we fear him? Jesus says, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. And he says, behold, look, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And I'm saying, what does he say here? Be not afraid of them. We shouldn't live in fear of men or Satan or symptoms or circumstances. And why is that? Nehemiah didn't just leave it there. Nehemiah says, don't fear them, but he says, do what? Remember the Lord. That's the key. Don't focus on your enemies or the obstacles in your way. He's saying, don't fear them. Don't be focused on them. He's saying, remember the Lord. Focus your attention on him. That's how we got to do Remember him. All the great things. Think about all the great things he's done in your life. Some people have been saved longer than others. All the times that he made a way, as we sing, when we knew there was no way. Who in here has had God make a way when they thought there was no way? Raise your hand. That's the majority of you. All the times he's done that, all of the Ebenezer stones, the times that you experienced his miraculous power, he says, remember that. And it's hard to do. It's hard to do when circumstances are overwhelming you and a trial is overwhelming you. You feel terrible. It's hard to remember the Lord. That's why he's telling them that here. Hey, be encouraged. All this opposition's coming your way, but Nehemiah answers them. He says, don't be afraid of them. Uh Uh-uh. Remember the Lord. He's great and terrible, he says. Look what he says there. Verse 14, be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and terrible. He's great in wisdom, in grace. 
in power, in his faithfulness. Is he not? That is our Lord. And he says he's awesome. And I take by that what a guy said that he has this habit of exposing his servants to difficulties, dangers, toils, and snares. Gets you in all of those ways, but he has a way of delivering us out of them, doesn't he? That's what God does. That's all through the Bible. He's an awesome God, a great and terrible or awesome God. Remember him, he says. Remember the Lord. And he says, when you do that, you know what you're going to have? The courage to do what it says there at the end of verse 14, and then you can fight. Fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Fight for your brothers and sisters. Remember the Lord. He's on your side. You can fight for your brothers and sisters that are in trials of any kind. Fight for your loved ones, your sons and your daughters, your wives that need to be saved. Remember the Lord and fight for them. He's the one that's on your side fighting. And I would say lastly, fight for our church. Believe me. I'll tell you, the devil would love for this church not to be here anymore. There's a lot of them that were like this that aren't here anymore. And where are those people at? Not in a good way. This is not in my notes. I'm done. I'm done preaching. I want to make a recommendation to y'all. So I, want, I would just recommend you go back and listen. Brother Hamilton had a tape called The Problem with the Faith Message. And I think he delivered that message two years ago. If you want to be encouraged on getting yourself back on track, back on walking with the Lord, it's delivered straight and it's delivered in love. I would recommend that you do that. It's a word to this church. And it's still the word to this church. Amen. That we can walk with the Lord. Come, let us build, that we no longer be a reproach. This is not a negative thing. It's a positive thing. And if we have things that aren't right in our life, that are hindering us from trusting him with all of our hearts, let's just deal with it. Amen? And get back on track if we need to. And if you're on track, be encouraged that God is with you. Amen? His hand is upon you. He's faithful. Let's pray. Hallelujah. And Father, we do recognize you, Lord. We remember you, Lord, for all the things that you've done for our church, this church here, and in our personal lives, and all the testimonies we've given through the years to your faithfulness, both big and small. And I ask, Lord, that you'll bring us back to that. Bring us back to our first love of trusting you wholly and walking in your paths of obedience, Lord, that we can see your power manifested here in our midst and in our lives to give glory to your name. And I ask that you'll help us to have the strength and the courage to build the wall, to know that your hand is upon each and every one of our lives and thus on our church. And that is my prayer for Shelbyville Christian Assembly today, Lord. And I look for you to perform that in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.